Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We hear this phrase all the time, once in a generation. All right, fine, but how long is a generation? Well, according to Wikipedia, it's about 30 years, which is the time it takes children to be born, grow up, become adults, and then start to have children of their own. The International Society of Genetic Genealogy sets the length of a generation between 29 and 31 years. Okay, so that's close. But that's if we're talking about the child-parent-child cycle of human existence. We can also use the word generation to describe other cycles, like the cycles we see in music. So let's try to do that. We all go through a period of coming of age with music. This is the period in our lives when music is central to everything we do. We use music to figure out who we are. We use it to bond with other like-minded people. And we use music to project our identity to the world. We use it to say, this is who I am. That period, and I am generalizing here, begins when we enter high school and ends when we get around to becoming adults. So that's roughly 10 years, ages 14 to 24, plus or minus a couple of years. If we consider that 10-year period to be a generation in music, the cycles will repeat much faster than the standard genealogical definition of generation. Extrapolating this reasoning, and as dodgy as this might seem to some, it's no surprise that we experience periodic revivals in music as we age into, through, and out of that musical sweet spot in our lives. So how long are these cycles? Well, using the rules I just described, we should experience revivals every 10 to 12 years-ish. Which brings me to emo. When can we expect a revival in that area? This is Chapter 3 of a series entitled Alt-Rock Revivals. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. My Chemical Romance, from their 2004 album, Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. That was part of the emo trend that built and peaked in the first decade of the 21st century. And they're also the band leading the emo revival of the 2020s. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third installment of our look at alt-rock revivals. Alternative music has been around long enough, 45 years and counting, 
that certain sounds and trends have cycled through maybe a couple of times as new generations pick up the ball and run with whatever music they seem to like. And this time we're talking about emo. Emo has come through in four distinct waves that sometimes overlapped. And each of these waves has periods that run anywhere from 8 to 12 years. We'll go through all of them. And again, if we're going to understand what's happening today, we have to review what happened back in the beginning, which was about 1984 and then went through to about 1994. That's the first wave of emo, a 10-year span during which emo was born and developed. At first, emo was really hard to find because it tended to hide in the corner and not attract too much attention. If alt-rock had a shrinking violet, it was definitely emo. The brooding, introspective, sensitive, troubled, empathetic, vulnerable, straight-edged, confessional, emotional subgenre and descendant of, believe it or not, hardcore punk. Some emo is pretty simple and straightforward. Other flavors are more complex, with unusual song structures and intricate guitar work. And there's a lot of debate, and I mean a lot, about what is and is not emo. You'll see what I mean in a bit. Maybe if we start with where emo came from, we'll have a better understanding of what's going on here. And even this is a tricky subject, because there are some very divergent opinions on who was responsible for this whole thing. For example, some emo researchers, and there are such things, say that emo began with the Beach Boys and the Pet Sounds album in 1966, which is not really crazy if you look at the record's lyrical themes, how Brian Wilson constructed the songs, and the fact that he was so emotionally damaged at the time. All right, what about the Smiths? They certainly had a lot of emo attributes, especially in the area of lyrics. But again, maybe not quite. However, if you clear away all the debris, it seems that you'll find a Minneapolis band at the very bottom of the pile. Husker Du was a three-piece hardcore band who decided that Melody had a place in punk after all. In 1984, they released a very important album called Zen Arcade. This record showed it was possible for American hardcore to be played very, very fast and very, very loud, but with melody and with meaningful lyrics. Husker Du also experimented with tape effects and acoustic instruments and vocal harmonies, and also by singing about deeply personal and emotional things. Now, that's key. More than one person has called this album the emo equivalent of the Beatles' White Album. Here's a sample from Zen Arcade. Listen to this carefully. It's a song about drug addiction and loss and death, but everything is set against some serious guitars. It's Husker Du with Pink Turns to Blue. Hey, you see what I mean? There are a lot of emo elements in that track from 1984, even though the concept of emo had yet to be born. Husker Du showed that you could be hardcore and sensitive at the same time without being a wimp. But before we declare Minneapolis to be the birthplace of emo, we need to give all kinds of credit to a scene in Washington, D.C. that emerged in the middle 1980s. And this is where we encounter a hardcore band called Rites of Spring. They played very loud, but not always as fast as their peers. And they didn't want to have anything to do with the violence that plagues some hardcore shows. And instead of going on about the same political and social themes, Rites of Spring chose to get very personal with their lyrics. 
depression, bitter romanticism, nostalgia for better times. And, as with Husker Du, the guitars were a little more melodic than everyone else. It's probably easier if I just played you something. This is a track from 1985. It's a self-titled record, which is considered by many emo scholars to be the first true emo record. This is For Want Of. Rights of Spring from 1985, produced by their roadie, a guy by the name of Ian Mackay. He is our next important character. Ian was inspired to leave his hardcore band called Minor Threat to form a proto-emo group called Embrace. They became part of what is now remembered as the Revolution Summer, when DC hardcore bands tried to break out of the dogma that had limited what hardcore could be. The guitars were loud, but there was less riffing and more strumming. Favorite guitars were Gibson Les Pauls or SGs, played through Marshall tube amps. No transistors allowed. Embrace also featured Rites of Spring singer Guy Picoito. He sounded like this. Here's a track called Give Me Back. So there's an example of early emo, but why was it called that? Actually, we're not sure. The term started to be bandied about in the mid-1980s, but no one has really taken credit for it because no one liked it. The original term was emo core, which was almost universally despised by all practitioners of this music, except a group called Verbal Assault, who were only too happy to call themselves emo core. Then there was a photographer who went by the name of Al Flipside, who apparently liked the term. And since humans need to organize and classify music just to keep track of everything, the name Emo began to stick. When Embrace broke up, Ian Mackay went on to form Fugazi, a band that was all about raw emotion. Not only has this band made some great and intelligent post-hardcore music, their sense of ethics was so strong that they basically set the standard for all of rock. They were completely anti-commercial. They played only all-ages shows. They owned their own label and issued CDs at prices just above cost. They kept their concert ticket prices as low as possible. They were into social and community activism. And in the process, Fugazi became the ultimate emo band. Here's some early Fugazi. This is from their 1988 self-titled debut EP. It's called Waiting Room. Not only did Fugazi set the standards for emo core, but they also gave it a home. Their label, Discord Records, became the spiritual home to the emo world. Now, remember, this world wasn't very big in 1988. It was confined mostly to the Washington, D.C. area and mostly to bands on the Discord label. However, this original D.C. emo scene was completely over by about 1988. All the bands involved had broken up and moved on. However, the seeds had been sown and emo-type bands began popping up across the continent. The first revival, or at least the next iteration of emo, came in the wake of Nirvana's Nevermind album in 1991. Over the next four years, all manner of alternative music was in demand, and some of those bands had emo attributes. We'll pick it up there in a sec. 
Now that we've covered Emo's first wave, which ran from 1984 to about 1994, we can look at the second wave, which begins exactly where the first one left off in 1994. The traditional hardcore community thought second wave emo groups and their fans were a bunch of wimps. But at the same time, though, there were those who appreciated this raw emotional honesty. Emo had not only spread, but it evolved. Bands began to put more dynamics into their songs. Lard, howled, explosive screaming bits interspersed with quiet melodic parts. Emo fashion began to emerge. Horn-rimmed glasses, bead necklaces, sweater vests over dress shirts with dress pants and white socks. Everything but the socks had to be in darker colors, too. So, in other words, pretty nerdy. Because emo wasn't about slam dancing or moshing, a new thing developed. The emo tremble. Basically, you wring your hands while bouncing off the balls of your feet in time with the music. A variation of that is sometimes called the emo tap, where you tap your chest along with the music. And everything stayed underground and very anti-commercial. For example, if you were in an emo band, it was almost considered uncool to even sell t-shirts at your show. Cover charge for a gig had to be five bucks or less. And if you charge more than $10 for a CD, well, that was considered gouging. Now it's time to talk about a New York band called Jawbreaker, which was headed up by a singer named Blake Schwarzenbach. First, he poured his heart out into personal journals. Those thoughts and feelings were then turned into songs. And in the process, he achieved a really special connection with fans. They really, really identified with him. In early 1984, Jawbreaker released an album called 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, which became something of a touchstone for this new iteration of emo. This is called Do You Still Hate Me? Emo continued to spread throughout the 90s, and one L.A. band that got tagged with the emo label was Weezer. And you can see why. I mean, they were nerdy and they were geeky. Singer Rivers Cuomo was a fan of highly confessional lyrics, expressing fear and bitterness and confusion. The guitars were sometimes big and loud, and there was more than a little punk rock to their sound than grunge. Taking everything we've learned about the origins and philosophies and dogma of emo so far... Listen to this song from the Blue Album using those parameters, and I think you'll see what I mean. Weezer from their Blue Album. Kind of second wave emo. But the label really started to stick with the second album, Pinkerton. Again, emo fans gravitated to Rivers Cuomo's headspace. Another place that emo took hold was in Seattle. Sunny Day Real Estate had nothing in common with groups like Pearl Jam or Nirvana or Soundgarden or Alice in Chains. They played slower than most other emo bands. Their songs were more melodic, and vocals tend to be softly sung or even crooned rather than screamed or shouted. In fact, some of the stuff that they did was downright poppy, Plus, this band was a real-life soap opera drama. Members quit, they returned, they found religion and quit again. And others, including the entire rhythm section, decided that they'd rather work for Dave Grohl and became one half of the Foo Fighters. Let me play you something. This is from 1998. It's Sunny Day Real Estate from an album entitled How It Feels to Be Something On. 
This is Pillars. By the end of the 1990s, emo came in all sorts of different colors and shapes. Sure, there was traditional emo. Fugazi made sure they kept that alive. But more bands were using catchy guitar hooks instead of the droney strumming. While a lot of arrangements still had that loud, soft, loud, soft dynamic, vocals started to become a little less screamy. Lyrics were still very emotional, but not quite as dire. Some had moved up the scale from depressed to merely somewhat melancholy. And hey, some songs actually sounded downright happy. All this contributed to a situation where emo was more accessible, more palatable to more people. And this leads us to the third wave, peak emo in the early 2000s. That's next. This is part three of our look at alt-rock revivals. And as we've seen, emo is slightly different than the punk and ska revivals in that it has come at us in different waves instead of going into full-on hibernation for a while and then coming back. Third wave emo begins in 2000 and recedes starting in about 2008 and moved into the background again as of around 2010. This is when things not only began to blow up in the mainstream, but also splinter into a million different variations, something that really annoyed the purists. Forgive them if they screamed, that's not emo, about a bunch of acts that were being labeled emo. There was, in short, a crossover between proper emo, if you'll allow me to use that term, and emo-like bands, who were probably best classified as punk, pop-punk, post-hardcore, and metalcore. There was a lot of fragmentation. Emo pop, screamo bands, just a couple of examples. And not all third-wave emo bands were brand new. Some had been around for years. It was only in the early 2000s that they came of age and started making an impact beyond a small scene. The one thing just about all these third-wave emo bands had in common was that they lived in an era where commercial success wasn't impossible. Major labels were interested, very interested, in turning emo into the next grunge. Radio was interested and was playing a lot of emo-ish music. Emo records from bands like Newfound Glory, Fallout Boy, Panic at the Disco, Taking Back Sunday, All-American Rejects, Simple Plan, and Alexis on Fire all rocketed into the top 10 on the album charts. The Warp Tour went emo-heavy for a while, and there were chances to tour with more established artists. For example, Saves the Day, definitely an emo band, toured with not just fellow travelers Weezer, but also Green Day and Blink-182. And Dashboard Confessional opened for U2. Fans loved it. There was something hugely cathartic about being able to scream your pain and fear with hundreds or even thousands of people at a show. And then there were bands like Jimmy Eat World. They have emo credentials, but they also had songs like, well, this. Thanks to songs like that, third wave emo was huge. But things also got dark. Some bands dipped into writing lyrics that contained violent imagery, talk of self-harm like cutting, and more than a few hateful stabs at doing harm to women. This became a real problem later when fans and bands looked back at some of the music and said, what were we thinking? There was a lot of emo for everyone between 2000 and 2010. But you know how music works, right? 
After a while, it was just too much. Things grew stale. The fans grew up and grew away. They weren't nearly as depressed. Younger fans now in their coming of age years wanted something different. And for them, that was pop, K-pop specifically, and hip-hop. So interest waned. This brings us to the fourth wave of emo. Before this period began, many emo bands had broken up. Alexis on Fire, My Chemical Romance, Thursday. Others moved on to other sounds and styles. Think Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy and Paramore. But emo never really went away. As third wave emo was falling apart between 2008 and 2010, the fourth wave was beginning. However, for most of the 2010s, this wave stayed mostly underground and regional, but it was kept alive by bands like Modern Baseball, Basement, Touche Amour, Into Over It, The Hotelier, Pianos Become Teeth, Just Friends, and, my favorite, The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die, which could be the most emo band name ever. Some of the bands are inspired by 90s emo. Others have come up with sounds independently of that. Still others have taken elements of emo and put their own twist on things. Will any of them explode into mainstream consciousness in the 2020s? Hmm, hard to say. Meanwhile, though, some of those third-wave emo bands, the most commercially successful of all the waves, have reformed. They're putting out new music, and they're touring before huge crowds. Alexis on Fire, for example, got back together in 2015 and are again enjoying massive success, touring arenas full of people. And in 2020, My Chemical Romance reunited. Their entire North American tour sold out in less than two hours. Will these third-wave vets result in a leg-up for fourth-wave emo bands? We'll see. On the next chapter of Alt-Rock Revivals, we're going to look at the constant rising and falling of garage rock. It is almost as old as rock itself. And since it first emerged in the early 1960s, it has ebbed and flowed constantly through the decades. And each time it's come up for air, it's had a major influence on the music of the day. So, Garage Rock Revivals, next time, with the ongoing history of new music. Don't forget that if you miss a program, you can always catch up via the podcasts. There are hundreds available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other podcast distribution platform you care to mention. Please rate, review, and share if you get a chance. I have a website that's loaded with all sorts of music information and recommendations, including playlists for all these programs. It's called a journal of musical things.com and it's updated every single day to keep up. There's a daily newsletter that's free to everyone. I can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and all emails sent to Alan at alancross.ca will be answered. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.